Hello and welcome to OpWall's Field Notes, a podcast created by Operation Wallacea to share stories and insights from our 25 years working in the field. My name is Sophia Wood, OpWall's Country Manager for Ecuador and Director of Friends of Wallacea, and I will be your host for this series. We launched this podcast to shine a light on the world of biodiversity field research and the work of those who dedicate their lives to understanding and protecting our planet. Each month, we have conversations with scientists, community conservationists, and experienced academics about new research, protecting biodiversity, and daily life out in the field. Today's podcast guest is Manuel Sanchez, an Ecuadorian ornithologist and science communicator who joined our expedition in the Amazon rainforest this year to run the bird surveys. Manuel grew up in southern Ecuador and fell in love with the hundreds of bird species he found in the forest around his home. He went on to study tourism, but with a strong focus on ecology, and then scientific communication in Edinburgh, Scotland, before making his way back home. Manuel's biggest passion is using rapid biodiversity assessments to protect threatened ecosystems across Ecuador and northern South America by engaging local people and politicians to move projects forward. In this episode, he discusses how he uses audioscapes to rapidly assess an area and his love for engaging local communities in this work. Manuel has been all over, from contested territory in Colombia to endangered ecosystems in Turkey to register and protect birds. As you'll hear, he believes strongly that in conservation biology, getting data is only half the work, and to make an impact, you have to know how to get politicians and local people on your side. Listen to this episode of Opal's Field Notes with Manuel Sanchez to learn how to translate biodiversity research into real conservation outcomes in some of the most threatened natural areas on Earth. Hi, Manuel. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Sophia. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we'll get right into it. So since we're taping everything from home today, where are you based right now? I am based already in Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador, and it is located in the central Andean Valley. Great. But you're not originally from Quito, are you? Where are you from? I know. Uh, I am from far southwest Ecuador, uh, which is the last province in the southern Ecuador on the western side of the Andes. The province is named El Oro, but my hometown is named Piñas, which can be translated English in pines, like the like you know, like the fruits of the pine cones or the cypress things, things like that. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well. Obviously, you know, we invited you on today to talk a little bit about your experience as an ornithologist and biologist in Ecuador. So you're a professional ornithologist. What came first, your love of birds or your love of science? I actually, I don't know if I can call or name myself a professional ornithologist, but I am just, you know, dealing with ornithology and I like it, trying to be professional and doing my job, but uh, what came first? Uh, I think because I grew up in a small town, which is not a small town anymore, but surrounded by nature and close by nearby forests and natural areas in my town, I would say that it came first for with birds, you know, commerce coming to the garden, Tanagers come into the gardens, other birds like uh, oven birds or flycatchers, raptors. So I would say that birds came first and then I get into science when I, I went to uni 
Perfect. Well, Ecuador is a pretty uh, lucky place to grow up if you're passionate about birds. I think there's just so many species of birds. I'm always surprised sometimes when, when Ecuadorians don't even recognize, you know, how many species of birds actually live there. So I know you, you started your, your path with, with tourism. What made you decide to then go study scientific communication and public engagement in Scotland? <laughs> that that's strange okay so when i finished high school um my dad or my family already has a kind of flat on the central andean region of ecuador in a province named chimborazo the capital is riobamba and my two older brothers studied there in a polytechnic school so because it was easy for us you know logistics and economically it was a public school uh, polytechnic I decided to go there not because tourism at all but because uh, the there was the, the my career is named uh, engineering in ecotourism but if you check all the syllabus it is it was packed with ecology and biology inclusive better than the biology uh, schools or careers in other units in the oh, capital wow. or anything else. So that's why I went there. For example, I have um, an entire semester of ornithology, an entire semester of zoology, an entire semester of uh, 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 entomology and other kinds of things. And that was... Uh, that was the reason that I, I decided to go there, ecology, flora, fauna. It was packed with that, a part of the tourism stuff. So that was that was why I decided to go there. And then it was just a, a, a thing of, um, I can say, life that I ended up in And I was just doing some stuff there. I, I, I went to live there. Um, I just find the chance to get to have this master's in science and science communication and public engagement. Already I was doing all that stuff there, traveling back to Ecuador or Colombia or going inclusive to, to Turkey to work with birds, but I find the chance and I, it was something new for me at that time, 2014, 13. It was something new inclusive for, for a scientific career. So I just decided to, to take the chance. Wow, that's a that's a really interesting path. It seems like maybe there's a gap in between the two um, studies where you were working. So how long were you working and what were you doing between you know studying tourism and what sounds like ecology and then going to Scotland and kind of how did that inspire you to go into to work to oh. studying in Scotland? Oh oh oh, um, probably we are going to get too much personal here, but. And when I was in Juni in the Polytechnic School, um, I went into university politics. So normally it takes a little bit of a couple of years more for me to get my degree in, as an engineer. So I finished Juni in 2005. But after, you know, all these practices that we have to do, I got my degree in 2008. But already I was working with birds. So I really enjoy, uh, not enjoy, but when I came to the capital and then I went to work in natural reserves and private reserves, I was just 
helping bird watchers and researchers and get more and more into birds. And I was very keen on that. Seems like seems like I was. And then um, uh, I used this job with birds, you know, survey, research, learning, helping. Um, I work for a foundation or NGO named Akipukuna Foundation, and we the, we we work together with other organizations to do the kind of a survey and of the all the birds and fauna and flora of the capital of the metropolitan district and things like that, you know, and learning, taking courses, learning vocalizations, recording vocalizations, da 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 da, da. and then um, it starts. Uh, First, uh, what I start to do is um, building companies start to try to contact me because I studied and know about birds in certain places. So they hire me to help or to guide group of builders or to help the tour leaders. And then how it starts. And then I, I went to Colombia, I went to Peru, I went to Argentina because I don't know, it's just something that if it's something that is easy for you, it's easy for you, it's like, listening bird vocalizations and you can learn them and keep them in your mind. And then you can recognize birds in other countries or forests or habitats or ecosystems. And you can, this is very helpful to, to guide people, uh, to guide birders because you know already the calls of the birds. But that was it. So I did for years that, uh, some small research, publications, working for NGOs, for projects, for universities. And then it happens that I have to go to live in Scotland and I was working there, living there, trying to live there. I came back to country. I did research in Turkey with migratory birds during spring and things like that. And doing a lot of workshops of training local people how to identify birds. That's I have been doing that plenty of time. I like that, especially working with local or native people. I recently two weeks ago finished um, a, a rapid workshop for a short birds for the people in a, who lives near a important a wetland area in Ecuador in Manabi province and da, da, da. so I did that and then one day I have the chance to apply for this master's living in Edinburgh so I did my master's in Edinburgh journey and then I came back to Ecuador and still continued doing this job you know birds ornithology guiding science communication things like that excellent well that's a very exciting story and obviously you have made a name for yourself in the region and in parts of the world for being very very good at recognizing bird calls especially all over latin america what are the projects that you are most excited about that you're working on right now what are you mainly working on okay for me exciting is that where I come from is a region, not just on the west, but also on the eastern side. I mean, South Ecuador, where a lot of birds um, or a lot of different species or races of birds encounter each other or meet each other. And that opens the chances for hybridization or for potentially the, the origin of a new or, or a new race of bird or subspecies of bird. So the exciting things that I am just doing right now is working on, 
on paraphyletic groups, which means that species groups that have a lot of members, a lot of races, all distributed all around the Andes or the subtropics in South America. So I am just working on that, recording calls of all the populations and then doing comparisons between between calls and vocalizations to check if they are different species or they have different vocalizations or if they have different plumages. Or normally, I work with birds that look similar each other. So what we do is just trying to find differences between birds that looks very similar, but the difference between vocalizations are obviously adding genetic information. And that's what I am doing already with um, the exciting stuff. So I hope papers are going to be public as soon as possible, because this kind of thing takes years. The last research it takes, took us like five, six years. So I hope it's coming this year to be published. It's on, already on press. Ooh, um, that's exciting. So is it a new yeah. species of bird that you're working on describing? I can't talk about what I am going to say that is not a full species, but is just trying to solve a problem with a group of birds that actually is adding more complicated ideas or scientific ideas about evolution about some birds. Because it's just, it's just, it's a long paper that probably have to work on a thread on Twitter trying to explain that in a simple way. But yeah, that's the exciting things. And now I am, I am working with a couple of birds more in Southern Ecuador with some friends of Denmark and here Ecuador. But also we recently started to work in, a, in another bird that we share with Peru. And so we are just working together with people from Peru and probably the States and Ecuador. So it's just this kind of things always involving vocalizations and a paraphyletic complications or birds that look similar to each other. Excellent. Well, that all sounds very exciting. And like you have a lot of projects in the air at once. So very lucky that you were able to come out on the Opal Ecuador expedition this year. Um, I actually wanted to delve a little bit deeper into your work with audio surveys and audioscapes, which is how we originally got in touch um, and how you're using them to study biodiversity. So you mentioned Obviously your audio recordings are a way to help you differentiate birds that look very similar. Are there other ways that sound recordings can help us learn more about species in a specific area? And what can bird biodiversity tell us about the health of an ecosystem? Oh, we can tell us a lot. Uh, there is a, an entire now a science path, or I could say science topic, which is a lot of people is getting attracted to that is ecoacoustics which means that you can record and you can run analysis of the entire landscape. So you can elucidate how many birds, frogs, insects are around there. And you can know if you compare similar areas or similar ecosystems, you can know if you are losing certain species on certain regions or things like that. It's very interesting because almost what... Uh, also complements uh, an environment is the sound. So uh, the sound is very important because you can uh, definitely know if there is, is, is a live forest or is a dead forest. So what we do with, with audio is just keeping records and 
and archiving them very well so everybody can check them, the localities, and if they are running surveys or if they went there and if those birds didn't call anymore, so they know that they were calling there at, until certain time uh, when something happens with the forest, with ecology, because normally it's not just about the forest, it's just in ecology and the natural history of the species during the interaction that maybe can uh, obligate a bird to move from there or they can uh, push a, uh, a species to, to the extinction. It's, it's very interesting. Some, some uh, is, is a kind of the, the driver of the existence of a species in, in, in the forest or any habitat. Uh, the most interesting history that I just was checking recently is like two months ago or three months ago, it, it was about some bird that uh, because the people recorded, have a lot of recordings, they are teaching the young birds with these vocalizations pre-recorded using speakers, uh, how, to, how to sing because the females are not putting attention on these male birds because they don't know how to sing. They don't have all the entire repertories of the species. So because there is a lot of people recording vocalizations, they can help these species to don't get extinct because the juvenile males don't, don't know how to sing anymore. You know, that's, that's one of the, the things that attracts me a lot of about acoustics because having these kind of archives can help us to, to not just to, to attract birds that somebody can have a picture. So they just to have a, a recording to be in checking for, for birds in, in, in a certain area is just because this archive can help you to, to recover a forest or to help a species to thrive in these difficult times for certain species. But that's it, that's, that's the thing that I like about audio surveys and audio surveys uh, are very important. If you need to, to run a rapid assessment or uh, when you are fighting against something and you need to protect the forest so you just have a few days to run a survey, using acoustics helps you to have a better and most accurate data of which species are living there because you don't have to uh, spend too much time trying to look them or trying to see them, to identify them, but you just record them and then you can check the audio recordings and you can know how many species or which different species are living in a certain area. That's what is also very interesting about uh, audio and audio uh, recordings and landscape and soundscape recordings. Wow. Well, that's fascinating and really, really exciting stuff. I, I do want to get into the rapid assessments and your work in protected area development because that's really important. But before I do, I wanted to ask a question that I think is probably on a lot of people's minds thinking about what the rainforests or the forests are like in Ecuador, because obviously a forest, you know, back home, boreal forest where I'm from or in the UK might only have, you know, five, 10, 15 species calling at any given time, but that's probably not the case where you're working in Ecuador. So is there any technology that you're, you and your teams are using to piece apart different calls from birds, frogs, insects, etc. Or does it just take a bunch of experts like you in all these different fields to be able to pick apart who's calling at what time? Normally, um, the different group of uh, animals, let's say in this case, birds, frogs, and mammals, they have, uh, inclusive insects, they have periods or fragments of time during the night, mainly when they call. 
So let's say if to have uh, just mostly just birds, you have to wait until the down zone. And as you say, in the rainforest, you can have in a down zone 35, 40, more than 40 different species calling at the same time in a really good forest in the jungles. But when you are going up, up in altitude, like foothills, like cloud forests, the, the richness and the diversity of species is, is more special and particular. It's less numbers, but more rare birds. So all, almost all the endangered birds that we have in Ecuador came from uh, foothills and cloud forests. And in the Amazon, obviously we have, uh, in the Amazon lowland rainforest, we have uh, uh, birds that are endangered of extinction, but it's not so much than in the cloud forest, if you compare both ecosystems. But going back to specialists, yes, now in Ecuador, there is a lot of people, especially herpetologists, trying to start to work and record frogs. But if you want to record frogs, you have to do it during the entire night. So you, ha you have to start at 6 p.m. and you can take until 2, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. But the, the, the difficult thing with frogs is that already the people, you need to see the frog to know which frog is calling. Actually, with birds, after, you know, birds are the more studied group of animals. So we know which species calling. We have like in Ecuador, we have like 30 years, 40 years of people who have been recording birds. So they have seen them, people doing research from universities or museums have been collecting them for collections. I, I read the collection about the specimens. So they know actually which bird is what's, what's doing certain calls and things like that. So we have a better information about which species calling, but with the frogs, it's, it's just a mess. Is you, you already need to, herpetologists uh, have to be with a recorder and they listen something, they have to keep quiet and trying to reach and to check if the frog starts to call again and moving leaves and waiting. And frogs really like to sing when it's raining or when it's close to rain. So the recordings has a lot of noise because the rain, it's, it's, just, it's just a different world doing acoustics with frogs rather than birds, but yeah. It takes a lot of things. I mean, you can you you have to record everything, and then you have to sit in your computer, put your your headphones, and just start to check species by species what's calling, what's calling there, what's calling there, because all of them uh, call or sing at the same time, but they occupy a different uh, space in the in the acoustic. Let's call it the acoustic chamber, or in the uh, audioscape. So. One bird could be a certain frequency, the other bird could be a certain frequency and rhythm and things like that. So they don't overlap each other. Actually, if you have the chance to see a spectrogram or a sonogram, everybody occupies his space in the audio landscape. Well, it sounds and, like it's a good thing you're an ornithologist and not a herpetologist then, <laughs> if you're yeah. interested in audioscapes. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about rapid assessments for biodiversity, since you've mentioned them a couple of times as something you've been doing a lot of in the last few years. So what are these rapid assessments and what are they for? Why are they important to protecting biodiversity? Actually, they were um, designed and created by uh, researchers from the universities in the United States. If I am not wrong, it starts with people from Louisiana University, especially ornithologists. So they know that some ecosystems were very rare and were very important. And they, they were like 
under threat because illegal mining or oil companies or logging companies or a lot of pressure because colonization and things like that. So they create all a system to uh, try to collect almost a lot of information uh, during uh, the just short periods of time because uh, trying to reach a, a land, uh, a kind of ecosystem takes, I mean, logistics, money, flights, rivers, walks, trying to get one of these special places, it could take you days. Right. It's very, you know, the logistics is quite complicated, but uh, when you are there, what you have to do is just to apply certain uh, techniques, uh, which are made for rapid assessments. And the idea is just trying to collect the most statistically and scientifically accurately information, then you can run some analysis like uh, diversity or richness and you can do this uh, what is called these are called uh, uh, rarefaction, uh, rarefaction curves that you can elucidate if the, you have been doing a good job or you need to run another survey to know if you need to record more different species or you can have at least you can have numbers and you can know the diversity of certain areas and with that you can promote conservation or help conservation research, which actually happens with us. Uh, we manage the chance to run a rapid assessment with uh, birds and frogs and plants and other stuff and, and herbs. And we helped to create in 2017, 2018, uh, a national park in Ecuador, which covers uh, highlands, paramos and cloud forests and lower foothills. And is now that this park is around 40 something thousand hectares of protected forest. So it's like, it's like that. That's, that's the thing you are, you are, you are doing something against the, against the, 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 the clock. And that's why you have to do this rapid assessment. I am not going to get into the tech. I mean, the, <laughs> that's okay. You don't have the, to get the into thing. the specifics of, of yeah, specific numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, course. like, like saying you have to run a chow analysis or numbers or, divide uh, what we do is just applying tables on statistical programs with presence absence of birth the totals things like that so the idea is obviously to be able to get in and get enough information that you can push back against the threat to a specific area relatively quickly based on data obviously you know <laughs> both of us have worked in Ecuador for a while. So I wanted to ask if you could give a little bit of background to listeners who might not know that much about Ecuador on what the major threats are to biodiversity and uh, wild areas in Ecuador today that you're helping fight against with these rapid assessments. Already, um, Ecuador is one of the countries that uh, has been surveyed very well. Uh, if, I mean, we are, there is some corners of the country that needs more surveys and deep research and we have to protect and so on and so forth. But um, as you say, the threats, the threats are, are, I think after this pandemic stuff, threats are more dangerous uh, than before. Uh, uh, the main ones depends where you are in the, in Ecuador. Uh, let's say, for example, I am going to start from the ocean, from the Galapagos archipelago. The main problem there is the, the illegal fishing for uh, sharks. Sharks, for instance, is just horrible there. 
And then if you reach the coast, uh, the problem in, in the coast uh, with the mangroves, patches is uh, uh, shrimp farms. If you move off the agriculture and the cattle pasture and the agricultural frontier is just logging and logging forests in the western side of the Andes in Ecuador, which already we just have the five, seven percent of native forest. And then uh, the rest is cities or the rest is has been logged and these pastures or is a plantation or something or anything. They, uh, if you go up to the Andes, wherever you are, uh, there is some places that are going with uh, with troubles of mining concessions with actually where is clean water in the highlands. So there is another problem there. But now if you go through the Amazon basin, there is more problems, uh, a part of a uh, open pit mining or illegal mining or, or medium scale mining is uh, logging and um, uh, not just mining, but also uh, oil companies and oil drilling. Uh, and also we have some problems, depends where you are in the in Ecuador, of uh, oil palm plantations, uh, which actually was a problem of just West Ecuador, but now seems to be that it's increasing in certain regions in the Amazon. And that's, that's it. That's all right. The, the that's main, it. <laughs> the main, just yeah, a short the, list. The, the, main, the, the main threads already in the country for for conservation so we, we are we're just trying to deal with and in, it appears things appear like one from one day to another during this pandemic in this kind of two years balsa trees becomes a kind of you know treasure for the market and almost all the balsa trees were just locked in the amazon but the thing is that they are just disappearing and being cut a lot and they almost mostly grow in these river islands, in the big rivers in the Amazon. And in these river islands lives a species of birds that they just live there. They don't live in the mainland. They just live in the river islands. And some river islands, despite the, the ecology, uh, certain species have managed in the chest to develop in, in the islands. So it's just sad because uh, I have friends trying to look for an endemic subspecies of a sparrow living in these river islands, but these river islands, almost all of them has been logged because balsa trees. So it's, it's just a thing, you know, we normally, uh, what causes uh, these problems in our ecosystems is the market of things, so oil, gold, copper, wood, and that's it. Yes, well, it is a major, <laughs> battle that you're fighting up against and, and I'm well aware of it from our work in Ecuador in Sani which is obviously in an area that's under threat from oil development to some extent from from palm oil as well um I'd like to you know switch us back to a slightly more positive note about some of the work that you're doing to help protect these areas you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation training local communities and indigenous communities to identify birds how much of your work is that? How do you how do you do it? What how do you train a community so quickly to learn so many species of birds? And how does it help with the conservation outcomes that you're going for? Um, I, I am I was part of the team that uh, pushed like in 2019 the red list of uh, uh, the red list of. Uh, bird threatened extinction in Ecuador. Okay. And if we have uh, 
if we want to have a, a better numbers, you know, to have a better statistics, you need to teach the local people who live with the birds every day uh, to identify them so you can run better assessments to know the territories, the numbers of them. So that's why we get into identifying birds. Normally with local people, they ask for that or there is some projects that try to help them is because one of the chances for local people to keep the forest uh, standing there and to protect the forest is just through ecotourism. And one of the parts of ecotourism is that uh, building tourism. So Ecuador, uh, since late 60s becomes a kind of a harbor of for the entrance of bird watchers for South America. So everyone came first to Ecuador to have an introduction of the birds of the South America because the Andes, because the Amazon, because the country is small and we share ecosystems with other countries like Colombia, Peru, Brazil. So Ecuador offers a chance to have a good introduction and to have a really good list of birds, doesn't matter where you are in the country. So that's why I get into birds. So workshops normally are run to teach people how to identify birds and how to guide bird watchers. And after that, it also doesn't work just for tourism, but also can work for conservation because people can make a reports of a rare species or of an endangered species. And we can know that their forest is also protecting uh, species and endangered of extinction. So that's how it works. But depends on where you are in Ecuador, one thing is running a workshop in the Amazon, and one thing is running a workshop in a wetland for coastal birds and shorebirds. So everything is different, you know, the techniques, how, did, how to identify them, da -da 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 -da. let's say, uh, if you want to identify birds by ear, on a, a, that works for forests, but if you want to identify shorebirds, you need your eyes, and you, you need to find clues to how to identify shorebirds. Um, but what I can say, normally a workshop works for, I mean, a, a good workshop can be 15 days, but uh, normally what we do is just one week rapid uh, workshops to identify birds. But actually the local people, they already know the birds. What they need is the tools yeah. and, and, some, and some techniques. They already know all of them. And it's funny because it doesn't matter, men, women, they just tell you, I know this, this is this, this is this, and they already know them. They just they just need the tools and that's it. And the chance to to to, to act as guides or to act as a, a field assistance on research and that that's it. Well, that's really inspiring work. And it's wonderful to hear about what you're doing to engage people all over Ecuador and protecting birds and biodiversity more, more widely. I'd love to ask you a few more questions about your personal experience in field biology and field work before we close out. So I know you've had a chance to travel quite a lot uh, to do this work. What's your favorite place you've had the opportunity to visit for your research and where would you like to go next? My favorite place for research, let's say, let's talk about projects. So in the project of this bird that I talked before, which is a type of a cloud forest finch, um, I have to, uh, to record the calls of one of the races in Colombia. So I went to a place named Montezuma, where is the 
western side of the is the Pacific slope of the Colombian Andes, and it's a region where the Chocó region and the Andes just cross there. And that region is just packed with Colombian endemic birds. I mean, birds that is just can be found in Colombia. And I went there, I have just two, three days chances to record the down songs of this bird for my research. And every day I just see, I just have the chance to see birds that I have never seen before in my life. And it was crazy because it was so quiet and no, a lot of people have the chance to go there. And there was just the birds just jumping in front of you and you are like, well, and you can make any noise because you can ruin your recording. So I was with the microphone recording the bird that I need, but I was seeing with my bare eye just close to me, a lot of really cool birds. So let's say that that was my, my, my best place for this specific research. I am really sure that there is other really cool places that I want to be for other projects. I am planning to go to Peru. So I am just imagining being the, in the Apurimac region in Peru recording a bird, but that's it. That's, that was the theme, but the, the next one that I really will be fun for me to be recording calls or doing research, uh, what it could be? Uh, I really want to, to record birds in a part of Ecuador that is, is there is, there is kind of difficult to try to get there. You have to take a short, I mean, it's not a short flight, but you have to get a plane and you have to cross your fingers to have a nice landing areas in the middle of nothing. Or you have to take a river, but those rivers there are kind of dodgy and rapid. But um, uh, that area is in Pastaza province in the borders near Peru. So there is a lot of, there is certain species of birds in Ecuador that you just can find them there. So I want to go there to record some birds. That's the next place that I am excited to go if I have the chance to go. But yeah, that's Excellent. it. Excellent. Well, I know you kind of got into one amazing experience that you've had in the field. What's the craziest or coolest thing that you've seen while working in the field? And I guess it doesn't have to be a bird, but it could be. <laughs> um, one of the craziest things that I, I have seen is um, perhaps how the people um, relate with, with fauna, local people, things that you don't know how they, they deal with or not deal is, you know, you know, local people interact with their fauna. So what I have seen in certain areas in the Amazon region in the lowlands is that local native people who doesn't interact too much with them with the rest of the civil or the society is they have um, they have animals as pets. And I have seen sometimes people having as pets um, uh, king vultures or in certain places, harpy eagles. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, and they say that they are like, like dogs, you know, because they can, if somebody or a stranger gets into their territory houses they can make some noises i i can say that i can say that because yeah i wouldn't want to fight off a harpy eagle personally i've seen i've seen some pretty crazy pets in the amazon tapirs lots of monkeys 
it is a very they, different relationship. Yeah, they have they have trumpeteers. <laughs> yes. But yeah. Yeah, most, most of the things involve sometimes risking life, but it's just what happens because it has to happen. But it's nothing else. I'm not sure most ornithologists risk their lives all the time, but um, I know. It looks it looks like no, you know, it's like, oh, he looks like look like birds, like hammers, like colorful. They they are so peaceful and so sometimes people doesn't know that we get into troubles because of that. But yeah, that's it. I'm going to keep that kind of normal, <laughs> I'll crazy, regular thing that I have seen. But yeah. All right. Well, just got a couple more questions for you to close out. I wanted to ask you, you know, at this point in your career, what advice do you have for people who are interested in starting their own career in conservation or ecology, or even if you have any advice for your younger self? What I would say is just there is some topics that we, I mean, my generation, I'm generation X, has um, uh, conservationists or call whatever you want, ecologists, conservationists, ornithologists, or, or anything, is that we forgot certain aspects. Because normally when we do research and we are just getting into, oh, I discovered this species, or, or this new territory for this species, this species endangered, we forgot other things like um, create the bond not with just local people, sino articulate everything uh, since the public concern or the public engagement with our research and also inclusive manage the chance to do um, political engagement or how to articulate your uh, research to help in the political decisions to have better laws and better, uh, better policies to protect the environment. I think that is something that we don't have to forget. I mean, being on field, being on camping, on doing research and on the rain and climbing on trees and forests and things like that, that sounds very adventurous and so on and so forth. Sometimes we forgot that connection that we need to, to create a kind of chain to protect the, the, the environment and the forests and the habitats. And my advice would be that don't forget that that part of you know how to engage, how to uh, contact, how to talk with your political representatives and things like that, so you can have at least your job or at least the things that you like or love or want to protect or benefit the others or to benefit you know for to have clean water or a clean air or whatever needs to be uh, connected with this type of things. That's why also I got into uh, science communication and public engagement thing when I was living in, in Scotland, but I think it's something that we should be teaching Juni. And that's fine. If you like the forest, if you like anything, like any living thing, doesn't matter if it's a fungus, doesn't matter if it's an insect or a bird or a mammal or a snake. It's just, it's just to try to connect that and the other part of the question was to my younger self. I was going to say, just don't, don't, don't be afraid. Just do things because it's not fun when you think about things that you should be done and you don't have the chance to do these kind of things because time happens 
but or time pass, but just don't be afraid. Do whatever you want to do. That's it. Obviously, not silly things, but don't be afraid. Just do the things that you want to do. That's it. I love it. That's perfect. Well, to end us out on a positive note, the question I always ask is, why do you personally believe that we should keep fighting to protect biodiversity and prevent climate change? And really, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Okay, positive note. Why do you believe we should keep fighting? I mean, we have to protect biodiversity because we are going to get extinct. We are just going to disappear. <laughs> we are just going to have more virus, virus, diseases. I mean, and just Jeff Bezos, he's just looking for his chance to, you know, go to the space and the rest of us are going to live still in this planet, you know. So we need clean water, we need clean food, we need clean air, we need clean ecosystems, we need animals, we need everything. So that's why we have to keep fighting for that. Um, I thought we can't prevent climate change because it's already happening, but we have to learn and to teach and to protect for us to be resilient. So that's why we need more research and we need to know what, how, how species before our presence has species, has humans, has homo sapiens here. A lot of species like birds, reptiles, uh, trees, they deal before with climate change during the Pleistocene, during anything like millions of years ago, say they can teach us how to survive to changes on climate. So that's why we have to protect them to, to learn how to survive, you know, as, as, a, as humans. And that's it. That's why we have to continue doing that. And, and what gets you out of it every morning? Uh, I mean, the idea that I am going to have coffee. That's, that, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. And obviously, Perfect. if I am on field, the idea of looking for birds and nature or record more than songs, but I, I don't know what has you out of bed, but for me, it's the idea that I am going to have coffee. Obviously, good coffee, but yes. that's it. If you have coffee in the morning, everything is good the rest of the day. Well, I think that's a great way for us to end our conversation today. Thank you so much for your time and your insights, Manuel. It's been fascinating talking to you and getting to share a little bit of your experience with Opwal students, people interested in biodiversity and conservation. Um, as we close out, I just want to ask, where can people find you? Do you have a website or social media where people can follow you and your work? <laughs> That's the time that I, oh, please don't follow me at Twitter. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I cheat in Spanish and English and sometimes people get literally certain things and don't understand what probably we are just kidding but no, okay um, I don't have a website uh, but I sometimes are kind of active on Twitter which is uh, my username is at clandestine bird and don't get don't, don't you know don't get me wrong it's just because it's twitter and on twitter we just write any crazy thing sometimes but what else uh i i, I don't know i have the common social media uh, things uh normally on facebook I, I am not too much active i just have that to administrate bird things and bird groups and on instagram also i am just publishing 
anything. So don't follow me at Instagram. It's the same name, clandestine bird. But yeah, uh, that's I can't, it. I can testify that Manuel's Twitter is very active and occasionally. I mean, vulnerable. it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. It's fun. But uh, yeah. what I can say, I know if you have to see or you want to see the serious thing, you can go to LinkedIn or ResearchGate and that's it. You can find the serious side of me, the publications and blah, 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 blah. blah. But yeah, Perfect. that's it. Well, we'll go look for you online uh, no. or, or not look for you as you No, please. <laughs> if it's like sharing the Spotify, your Spotify playlist and everything gets worse. But no, that's it. Well, thank you so much, Manuel, for your time. I really appreciate thank it. It's great to talk to you. And uh, and thanks for being on the podcast. No, thank you, Sophia. Thank you, too. And thanks for everybody that's listening to this podcast. And see you later and see you in the future. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Opal's Field Notes. We hope you were inspired by Manuel's work to create new protected areas across Ecuador and South America using rapid biodiversity assessments and community and political engagement. Please do be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on new episodes about conservation and biodiversity hotspots around the world coming soon on Opal's Field Notes.